Section 7 of Other People's Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Other People's Lives by Rosa Nochette Carey. Book 3 The Two Mothers. Chapter 3 A Little Rift. If Mrs. Compton had had a daughter on whom she could have expended some of her surplus affections, she would have been a much happier and more contented woman, and her disappointment with regard to Jack would have been lessened and in some measure shorn of its bitterness. In her early married life, she had often amused herself by imagining this visionary girl. She must be called Inez after her own sweet mother, and of course she would inherit her dark beauty. Boys were stubborn facts, and could not always be molded and tutored, and already in her secret heart she feared that Jack would be a failure. But his sister would be different. She would see things with her mother's eyes, and when she grew up would realize all her ambitions. But alas, as the years went on, no dark-eyed girl came to inhabit the empty nursery at King's Dean. Jack's wife, whoever she might be, was not likely to be a daughter to her, she thought regretfully. His opinions on that subject would certainly not agree with hers. Some fresh-colored country girl, good-humored and with a dimple or two, was likely to be his choice, especially if she rode well and had a pretty figure. In that case, Jack would never concern himself with her pedigree or trouble to inquire if her dowry were likely to be equal to her good nature. He was far too casual and happy-go-lucky for that. In spite of his Scotch ancestry, he was as impetuous and improvident as an Irishman, and never looked ahead for consequences. With all her faults, Mrs. Compton had a loving, womanly nature. She still hoarded jealously the relics of Jack's babyhood and boyhood. In her sad and lonely hours, she would sit and weep over them. Jack once saw a shabby little red shoe sticking out of his mother's work bag, but he never imagined the dense, foolish fellow that he had ever worn it himself. It is just like her. She is so fond of the little kids, he muttered, as he poised it on two fingers with a laugh. His mother, who entered the room at that moment, saw him replacing it in the bag and gave him a queer look. She thought he was laughing at her, and the sound hurt her, but she was far too proud to tell him so. These little jars and misunderstandings were daily occurrences. Jack, in his clumsiness, was given to tread rather heavily on people's toes. He made foolish blunders and then laughed at them, and he had a habit of saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment. That was sadly provoking to his mother. Mrs. Compton was not a woman of wide sympathies, but she was staunch and loyal to her friends and could make herself much beloved by them. Yet with the exception of Miss Patience and, later on, Claire Merrick, she had very few intimate friends in Sandalins. With the villagers, she was a little standoffish. When Madame puts her foot down, there is no getting over her, Jane Boyers would say in her peevish tones. But then Jane Boyers was a slattern and a bad manager. From the first, Penelope Crump had been a favorite of Mrs. Compton's. There was something in the girl's air of refinement and her modest, gentle ways that pleased her. And in her stately fashion, Madame took a great deal of kindly notice of Felix's sweetheart. When Mrs. Trimmer's eyes failed, Penelope's skillful fingers were often of use in mending Madame's old lace or doing fine stitching for her. Trimmer had lived with Mrs. Compton ever since her marriage, 
She had been Jack's nurse and afterwards filled the post of confidential maid. To her faithful trimmer, Mrs. Compton would speak more openly than to any other creature. On her side, trimmer was devoted to her mistress. She was proud of her beauty and took immense delight in brushing out her glossy hair. Few women of her age have such hair, Mr. Jack, she would say sometimes. When she is sitting down, it just sweeps the ground, and it is as black and glossy still as Mac's wing. Mac being the abbreviation used by the household for Machiavelli, Jack's raven. Richard had christened him rather to his son's disgust. It is an ugly name, Dad, he had said discontentedly. And indeed, until he grew up, Jack was not clear who Machiavelli was. Mrs. Compton was always ready for a chat with Penn when she came up to Kingsdean, bringing the work with her. The girl was singularly intelligent and fond of reading, and Mrs. Compton took a great pleasure in lending her books. In this way, Penelope was made acquainted with the best authors and poets, but she never spoke of these studies to Felix, though now and then he opened his eyes rather widely when she verified a quotation. "'That's from Tennyson's Idols of the King, isn't it, Felix?' she said once. But when he looked at her with a knowing smile, her color rose. "'Somebody reads my books,' he said laughingly. "'Poor little Pen, she means to be a learned woman some day.' And he patted her hand. But the trace of patronage in Felix's tone jarred on Penelope's sensitiveness, and she drew it away with unusual pettishness and changed the subject. She would not tell him, she vowed inwardly, that she only read the books to make herself a fit companion for him, and to cheat her own misery during those long, weary days of his absence. When Mrs. Compton went down to the bakery for the first time after Felix had gone back to his house surgeon's duties, she noticed a change in Penn. The girl looked worn and sadly out of spirits, and the violet shadows under her eyes gave them a deeper and more wistful look. She is not happy. That young man has disappointed her in some way, she said to herself, as she watched Penn's languid movements and listless air with unfeigned solicitude, and all the remainder of the day she could not get the girl's face out of her mind. But Mrs. Compton little knew what Penn was undergoing during that week which she had hoped to be so happy. Day by day and hour by hour, an invisible yet most tangible wall seemed to be slowly building itself up between her and Felix. And yet there was no adequate cause for blame. Felix was as kind and thoughtful as ever. He had brought her pretty gifts from London. It was not possible for him to talk to her of all his hospital experiences. There were limitations even to Penn's sympathy and enthusiasm, and she would most certainly have drawn a line at the operating theater. Felix could not share his greatest successes with her. He could only hint darkly that he was following in his master's steps. He is grand, he would say with a catch in his voice. He has saved more lives than any man in London. When other surgeons hesitate, Mr. Burnaby goes in and wins. If I work hard all my life, I shall never come near him. And Felix's eyes lighted up with the fire of hero worship. But Penn, who knew what he meant, shuddered slightly. Her nature was timid and she closed her eyes as much as possible to the grim realities among which Felix spent his life. I am so glad that doctors never speak about their patients at home, she said once, later on, to Mrs. Compton, but Madame only laughed. If I had married a doctor, I should have made him tell me things, she said in her abrupt, quick way. I could not have borne to have lived outside his work. I should have felt so out in the cold. Besides, all these scientific subjects interest me so much. I should have made a good hospital nurse myself. And Mrs. Compton spoke the truth. 
The evening before Felix left Sandalins, he asked Penelope to walk with him to Sandy Point. It was their favorite walk, and they both loved it. Felix was a little silent and thoughtful, and Pen, with her usual tact and unselfishness, did not try to rouse him from his abstraction. But later on, as he lay at her feet on the soft, thymy grass, and looked over the wide landscape that stretched below them, in which Claire Merrick, always said, reminded her of the land of Beulah, Felix began to talk, but he seemed in rather a dissatisfied mood. "'I don't want my mother to be different, Pen,' he said a little restlessly. "'I am not such a cat as that.' I should be a fool if I tried to turn her into a lady or expected her to wear fine clothes and sit with her hands before her. Poor little mother, how miserable she would be. But all the same, I hate all this cake-making for folk who turn up their noses at us. Felix spoke with such extreme bitterness that Penn glanced at him in surprise. What had put him out, she wondered. And then, being very quick-witted, she remembered that Madame had paid a visit to the bakery that morning and had given her orders in Felix's hearing as he sat absorbed in his books. He had risen and bowed at her entrance, but she had only vouchsafed him a cool nod and had spoken at once to his mother. "'My cook tells me the last batch of cakes was not quite so good, Mrs. Earle," she said in her crisp, decided voice. But Miriam, who was sensitive on this point, would not allow her to finish her sentence, and Madame was compelled reluctantly to listen to her voluble excuses. Something had gone wrong with the oven. She had sent to her landlord, but he had not troubled himself to put things right. She had been dissatisfied with the cakes herself, but these accidents would happen, and she could assure Madame that the next baking would be quite to her liking. I have been making a sultana cake for my boy to take back with him to London, she finished. And I do assure you, Mrs. Compton, that the paste just crumbled with richness. Felix stamped his foot as he listened and said a naughty word under his breath when Madame had gone. Miriam looked a little aghast as he vented his indignation in no measured terms. "'Dear heart,' she said placidly, "'what have you taken into your head, my lad? Madame meant no disrespect because she found fault with my cakes. Don't I know she spoke the truth? Why, the oven would not he properly. Don't you mind my telling you at breakfast? If all these cakes are not spoiled, my name's not Miriam Earle.' Those were my very words. Mother, burst out Felix, I know I am wrong, and that my temper has got the better of me, but if you knew how it riled me to hear you excusing yourself to that stuck-up piece of elegance. Mrs. Compton may be rich and have her carriages and horses and fine things, but you are as good as she is, and she shall know it too one of these days. When I have paid my debt, I will take you away from all this, and you shall only make cakes for me. There is a good time coming, little mother, but we must wait for it. But here Felix sighed rather heavily, and Miriam, who had listened to him very quietly, turned away with a queer little smile. Poor dear lad, she said to herself, he is a bit upset with Madame's brusque speech. He does not understand her as Penn and I do. He is grieving about our humble ways, bless him. Perhaps his holiday has been long enough. And here Miriam's eyes grew a little misty. For the first time she felt a sense of forlornness. I'm like the little gray hen, she said to herself with a sigh, when she hatched the duckling among her chickens and saw it sailing away across the pond, how she fretted and cackled. I called Pen to see her fussing round. Well, London is just the big pond to me, but my lad's a good lad, and he will never be ashamed of his mother because she had a humble upbringing. Felix grew quite eloquent as he talked and pulled up the little pink bell heather and twirled the lovely things between his fingers, while Penn sat and watched him with her hands folded together in her lap. Penn was looking unusually well that evening. 
She wore her best gray dress and her straw hat with a knot of yellow marguerites in the black velvet band. As she looked down into the green plain at their feet, her profile was turned to Felix, and half unconsciously he noticed the soft, creamy color of her skin and the bright glossiness of her fair hair. But Penn little thought that he was admiring her. On the contrary, she was saying to herself in a hard, bitter way, It is only Aunt Miriam he thinks about. He is vexing himself with the thought of the money he owes to Mr. Burnaby, and the years that must pass before he can have his way and take her to London to keep his house. But he little knows, and I dare not tell him the truth, poor boy, that Auntie is far happier as she is, making her cakes and sitting in the porch of an evening knitting socks and thinking of him, than she would be in the finest house he could take for her in London. Aunt Miriam would hate to be waited on by a lot of stuck-up servants, she went on. Her fingers would itch to be mixing the dough and watching her oven, but I dare not tell him this. And then a little dry sob rose to Penn's throat. Poor girl, she had her own private grievance. Felix and she had kept company ever since they were children. That is how Penn put it. She had only been ten years old when they had broken the crooked sixpence together, and Penn had her half now. And was she not wearing the turquoise ring that Felix had put on her finger when he first went to London, and which he had told her, with a boyish blush on his face, was one day to be replaced by a wedding ring? And yet for months he had never said one word about the home he hoped to make for her. His work at the hospital, his debt to Mr. Burnaby, and his plans for his mother seemed to fill his mind. No wonder poor Penn was absent and sad-hearted, and that Felix for the first time found her lacking in sympathy. Once or twice she had spoken a little sharply. "'You must not be so touchy, Felix,' she had said once in a reproving voice. "'In this world it does not do to be bristling over with prejudices like a porcupine.' Felix, who was in a sore mood that evening, felt himself a little affronted. He wanted to be soothed and comforted. Madame's pride and standoffishness, her want of neighborliness, had galled his self-respect. Both his temper and his dignity had suffered, but Penn had no honeyed words for him. There are thorns everywhere, she had said with a touch of impatience in her voice, but there is no need to prick yourself. Please do not say such hard things of Mrs. Compton. We all have our faults, but she is a good friend to me and I love her dearly. Penn had delivered her little protest with a quavering voice. She was on the verge of tears, but Felix jumped up with a frown and a muttered pshaw and walked to the end of the green slope. The grass where he had lain was strewn with the pale pink heads of the bell heather that he had decapitated so ruthlessly. Penn gathered two or three and hid them in her glove. They were still warm with the pressure of Felix's strong fingers. As she did so, her eyes smarted with the tears she had repressed. It is getting late and mother will be looking for us, observed Felix rather sulkily over his shoulder. In certain moods, one must find a victim to sacrifice, and an innocent victim will quite answer the purpose. Long before they reached Audley End, Felix had worked himself into the belief that Penn had injured him. I never thought my old chum would have disappointed and failed me like this, he said to himself gloomily, and he showed his displeasure so plainly that the poor girl cried herself to sleep. Felix was a little ashamed of himself when he saw Penn's pale cheeks and swollen eyelids the next morning, and spoke to her with unusual kindness. "'You must write me more regularly, Penn. I shall look for your letters,' he said, as he put his arm around her, for his parting caress. But Penn made no answer to this, and there was no response to his kiss. The cheek she had turned to him felt cold and smooth as marble, and she shivered a little as she stood in the sunshine. 
About a week after this, Penelope went up to King's Dean with some work she had finished. She found Madame sitting in the bay window of her morning room, writing to her boy. She looked up with a smile and a nod as Penelope entered and pointed to a chair. "'Please sit down and rest yourself while I finish this letter to my son,' she said in a kind voice. "'There are some books on that table.' And then she wrote on, and Penelope turned over the pages of a novel listlessly, while the raven Mac watched them from outside the window with his wicked, glittering eye. Mrs. Compton did not hurry herself. Her keen eyes told her that Penelope looked unusually languid and weary. She had made up her mind to question her on the first favorable opportunity. "'Don't I know what it is to be bitter and disappointed and unhappy?' thought the widow as she folded up her letter. "'If I can help her, I will.' And Mrs. Compton was a woman of her word. Perhaps it was because Penn was weak and overstrung, and needed comfort so sorely, that her shy reticence broke down so completely under Mrs. Compton's kind sympathy. Madame could be soft and womanly when she chose. In a very little while, Penn was telling her pitiful tale, and Madame's kind eyes were full of tears. "'He has been my sweetheart all these years,' sobbed Penn. "'I never remember the time when he was not my first thought. He is the dearest thing I have in the world.' I should not know myself if I had not to think of him from morning to night. When I say my prayers, I sometimes forget to pray for myself. I am so busy about him. And now it has come to this, that Felix is just tired of me. Oh no, Penelope, you would never convince me of that, returned Mrs. Compton quickly. Felix Earle is not such a cad as to throw over the girl he has been courting all this time. I think better of him than that. "'Oh, you must not think I mean to blame him,' returned Penn with a sudden flush. "'It is not his fault he has grown weary of our sweethearting. "'Don't you see how it is, Mrs. Compton? "'Please put yourself into his place. "'Young men are so different from us poor village girls. "'We grow stupid and dense in our limited little world. "'We see nothing and do nothing but sew and bake and keep the house neat, "'and on Sunday we sing hymns and listen to the vicar's sermons. "'Yes, Penelope, I am following you most attentively.' and Mrs. Compton's voice was sweet to Penn's ears. Madame certainly was not stinting her sympathy. "'And then think what a different world Felix lives in,' continued Penn. "'It is not only his work I am meaning, but he visits at good houses and mixes with clever people. I notice the little things he says. He is always talking about culture. There is a family who are very kind to him, and where he often spends his Sundays. They live in Upper Westburn Terrace, and their name is Robertson.' One of the sons is at Guy's, and there are several daughters. Here Penn's voice grew a little strained and high. He often speaks of them by name. They are all good-looking and amiable. The eldest, Miss Laura, is a linguist and translates books. And Miss Florence, the second one, is musical and has taken her degree. It was only the other evening Felix was praising them to Aunt Miriam. They are cultured gentlewomen, but they love work and are never idle a moment. I remember he said that, Miss Pauline, the third daughter, is an artist and exhibited in last year's academy. And Phoebe, the little one, she is hardly grown up yet, means to be a hospital nurse. And you are jealous of these industrious young ladies, observed Mrs. Compton with a smile, and again a painful flush crossed Penn's wan face. How can I help it? she returned in a stifled tone. Felix likes them all, but I think he admires Miss Laura most. She is so handsome, and she is the cleverest of them all. Oh, Mrs. Compton, please do not despise me, but I often cry myself to sleep, thinking of the difference between me and those girls. 
I've been teaching myself French for a long time, but I have no one to help me, and all my reading does not amount to much. And then when Felix comes down here and sees me cooking and baking and ironing, he compares me with Robertson girls, and of course I suffer in his opinion. Penn was silent from excess of feeling. To her, the whole situation embodied a tragedy. The love of her life, the hero whom she secretly worshipped, had looked coldly and critically on his handmaid, and all Penn's womanly nature was stung to agony. Jealous. She was bitterly jealous. Laura Robertson's visionary face haunted her very dreams. If Felix loves her, she shall take my place, but I think my heart will break, Penn would say to herself as she wandered through the fir woods in the gloaming. Mrs. Compton had said little, but her thoughts were active. More than once as a girl talked, Madame had looked at her with strangely piercing scrutiny. Penelope had always attracted her. She had long ago found out that the girl had a rare nature, but she had never felt so drawn to her as she did this day. There was a modesty, a reticence, and a self-respect about Penn that would have become the finest lady. Her manners were soft and pleasing. She moved quietly, and her voice, with all its untrained rusticity, was very sweet. A little cultivation would do wonders for her, Madame thought. She is one of nature's gentlewomen now. She is far too good stuff to be flung aside like a worn-out shoe, even by the most admirable Crichton in the world. And here, Madame positively sneered. No one can be a better judge of such things than I am. I've earned my experience. Penelope will never disgrace Felix's choice. I would take my oath of that. He need not be ashamed of his old sweetheart under any circumstances, but we must change the environment. And here Madame's pretty foot, with its arched instep, tapped the floor a little restlessly, and then her eyes brightened, and she rose from her seat, and with a gesture full of grace and kindness, held out her hands to the girl. Penelope, you poor child, I am so sorry for you, but you must not take fancies or lose heart. You must be true to Felix, in spite of his mannish and careless ways. I am going to help you both. I see a way to do it, but you must submit to be guided by me. Can you trust me? Very meaningly. Will you, for one year, put yourself in my hands, and allow me to deal with you as though you were my own daughter? Penelope, believe me that you will never repent it. I shall be your best friend. And then, as Penn looked up into the older woman's eyes, she read there such goodwill and sympathy, with such a perfect understanding of all her dim and confused pain, that her heart gave a little leap, and as the kind hands pressed hers, she whispered, I trust you perfectly. Only help me to keep Felix's love, and I will be grateful to you all my life. End of section 7